Um, my name's Toby Simpson, and as director of the Wiener Holocaust Library, I'm delighted to be able to introduce you to tonight's event, a virtual conversation, race, science, and eugenics in historical and contemporary context. I'm joined tonight not only by my colleague, Dr. Barbara Warnock, but also um, by Angela Saini, Professor Marius Torda, and Dr. Joe Mulhall, uh, who Barbara will introduce to you fully in just a moment. I'd also like to thank uh, Hope Not Hate for partnering with us for tonight's event. So before handing over to Barbara, I just want to point out um, that this event inaugurates a series on the themes of racism, anti-Semitism, colonialism and genocide that is set to run through the rest of this year and into 2021. And I'd like to just start off by saying a few words about why we're doing this. Each of these four topics would of course merit a series in their own right or indeed multiple uh, event series. Um, nevertheless, in the midst of this pandemic, we've noted that racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories have increasingly spilled over from online forums into the public sphere, uh, perhaps most troublingly in Germany, but unfortunately the phenomenon is widespread. And we've also witnessed uh, witnessed the profound expressions of outrage against anti-black racism in, in reaction to the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and this has added an extraordinary new impetus to the Black Lives Matter movement, the re repercussions of which continue to be felt almost everywhere. And we thought it was very timely to inaugurate a series on these particular topics. The Wiener Holocaust Library is Britain's largest collection of source material relating to the Holocaust and other genocides. It was founded in 1933 in Amsterdam by Dr. Alfred Wiener, a Jewish scholar and refugee from Nazism, who took on the mission to inform the world about the crimes that were being perpetrated against the Jewish people initially in Germany and then across Europe. It's an institution based in London in Russell Square, which exists to further the study of the Holocaust and other genocides. And that means that we're deeply committed to anti-racism and also to anti-antisemitism. For us, that means challenging but meaningful work which includes reflecting deeply on the historical roots and antecedents of racism and anti-Semitism, as well as their abhorrent consequences. So I thought it would be worth saying prior to this meeting, uh, just something about the additional about the, the, the context that we're living in today and how immediate and urgent some of these questions are. Earlier today, uh, the senior team at the library met with a scholar who's been working extensively on the persecution of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, China. And we all felt shaken by what he described about the accounts of forced sterilization, mass incarceration, and also the, the systematic obliteration of cultural life of the Uyghur people. And I'm sure many of you will have seen this weekend the Chinese ambassador's deplorable lack of engagement with the evidence of these crimes in this interview on the BBC. And this has quite rightly mobilized the demand for answers and for action, for example, from the Board of Deputies of British Jews, which we fully support. Um, it, it prompted me, however, in the light of this event tonight to reflect on one of the moments in the interview, which was when the Chinese ambassador re referred approvingly to the work, of the work of Martin Jacks, who's a London-based scholar and columnist. And as a non-expert, I found this somewhat surprising, as amongst many other things, Jacks' book, When China Rules the World, explicitly describes the pervasiveness of racism in contemporary China's, Chinese culture. For example, the book descri describes the colorism uh, that has been part of ancient Chinese culture since uh, since ancient times. Uh, the fact that it derives from class prejudice uh, from uh, people who labored in the fields. And it goes on to note how from the 1890s, the cultural racism of ancient China 
was articulated into a new and popular racist philosophy by a rising class of academics and writers who were influenced by the racial theories and social Darwinism prevalent in the West at that time. He notes that racism from the 1890s became an integral part of popular thinking. Given that the picture that Jacks paints of racism in China up until this day is by no means flattering, the fact that the Chinese ambassador quoted the book approvingly uh, is perhaps surprising. And it hints at the complexity, the subtlety, and also the immediacy of the questions that we're confronted with today about racism, colonialism, anti-Semitism, and genocide. I'm very pleased that we have such distinguished speakers with us to talk about these subjects. Um, so I'm delighted to uh, hand over to Barbara Warnock to start this event about race science and eugenics in historical and cultural context. Barbara and I have worked together over many years and recently Barbara has produced a number uh, of claimed exhibitions on related subjects, including two extraordinary recent exhibitions, uh, The Lost Photographs of Gertie Simon and Forgotten Victims, The Nazi Genocide of the Roma. Barbara. Thank you very much, Toby, and welcome everybody. I'm delighted to be able to introduce our distinguished panel of speakers for this exploration of the history of race science and eugenics and its connections to nationalist far-right and fascist politics of the 19th, 20th, 20th and 21st centuries. Just before I introduce the speakers, I should say that the way the event is going to work is um, that we'll be exploring these um, very complex and wide-ranging issues and I'll be addressing a series of questions to various panel members and we hope there'll be a bit of time at the end for a couple of questions. So first to introduce our speakers. Angela Sini is an independent British science journalist and author. Her latest book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, published in 2019 to widespread critical acclaim was named a book of the year by the Financial Times, The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Sunday Times and won the Transmission Prize. Sini presents radio and television programmes on the BBC and her writing has appeared in The Sunday Times, Nature, New Scientist, National Geographic and Wired. She's won a number of national and international journalism awards. Her two-part documentary series for BBC4 about the history and science of eugenics aired in autumn 2019 and was a pick of the day in a number of national newspapers. Her previous book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, was published in 2017 and has been translated into 13 languages. Marius Torda is director of the Centre for Medical Humanities, <clears throat> originally from Marmaris, Turda has been teaching at Oxford Brooks since 2005. He is the author with Maria Sophia Quine of Historicizing Race and in 2010 published Modernism and Eugenics. He is the founder director of the Katimir Institute at the University of Oxford and founder of the Working Group on the History of Eugenics and Race established in 2006. Between 2010 and 2014, he was direct, deputy director the Center for Health, Medicine and Society. Torda is also fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a fellow of the Galton Institute. Omar Hall is senior researcher at Hope Not Hate, a group founded in 2004 to use research, education, advocacy and public engagement to challenge raci racism and fascism. Mulhall was formerly a visiting lecturer at Royal Holloway University of London, where he also completed his PhD on the post-war far right. 
He has published extensively on the international far right and discussed his research on the BBC, CNN and Channel 4 News, amongst others. He is the co-author of The International Alt-Right Fascism for the 21st Century, um, published this year. Is it forthcoming, Joe, or already out? You're muted. <laughs> Yeah, it's already out in... in it's already out, yes, sorry. Yeah. Yes, and there, um, there will be links in the chat um, so that you can buy everybody's books um, uh, and, and, um, and find out more. So um, the first, I wanted to sort of just start with a question for Angela, um, which is just to kind of clarify what race science actually is. Um, and how, within race science, does it conceptualise this idea of race? Oh, that's a very big question. Yes. <laughs> but um, I think a lot of people imagine that the idea or the word race or the idea of race has been around for a very long time. Um, it's sometimes an affront to people's sense of identity to know that it's only actually been around the way that we use it now for a few hundred years. Um, so before then, uh, for example, in the 1600s, the only time that you'd hear people talking about race as such or using that word was it maybe in reference to a family or a tribe of people, so a group of related people. Um, it was in and around the European Enlightenment when thinkers and naturalists started classifying and cataloguing the natural world, flora and fauna, that they also started to catalogue and categorise humans. Um, and it was always very arbitrary. And indeed, these kind of colour-coded categories that we use now, black, white, yellow, red, brown, you know, we have different words for them, but essentially that's how we think about race even now, um, was as arbitrary as anything else. You know, it doesn't really make much sense when you think about the fact that, for example, skin color within countries can vary enormously. So for example, India, where my parents um, were born, there are people of every possible skin shade. You see genetic variants for different skin colors everywhere. There are no black genes, there are no white genes. But of course, a few hundred years ago, people didn't, I mean, European thinkers just didn't know how human variation mapped. They certainly weren't doing kind of systematic, careful study of different groups of people and understanding how do we separate culture and language and the kind of superficial aspects of difference from or the cultural aspects of human difference from what something going on deep down and they just assumed these were often the same thing um, so meaning was given to these categories by science they were created by science meaning given to them by science and the politics was there right from the beginning it was woven in from the beginning because Western, uh, and I'm talking about kind of upper class European male scientists believed themselves to be the most advanced and civilized race of all. Everybody else was kind of lagging behind to some degree. And the science of human difference was built on that. Um, so at every stage, I like to remind people that science has always been political. And political bias still affects science now. The way that scientists think about human difference now is still affected by this idea. Thank you. And just as a, a sort of follow-up question um, to you, or it could be to our other speakers, um, does race um, exist um, in the way that within race science it is said to, or is it just a social and cultural construct? It is a social construct. That's not to say there's no meaning to it whatsoever, but there's almost no meaning to it whatsoever. So 
real genetic variation, innate differences map very, very poorly onto these racial categories that we use, so much so that they, to the point of meaninglessness. That's not to say that there is in, isn't individual difference between humans. Of course, there is. We're not clones of each other. Um, and the way that individual difference works is that, for example, I am genetically more related to my um, parents, to my sisters. I have a slightly weaker genetic relationship to my second cousins. It gets weaker and weaker, the why do you draw that circle? Now, historically, we have tended to live near kin. And that means that um, for those number of generations, even within villages or within small communities, you can see some statistical similarities between the groups, not kind of in a profound way, the vast majority of human difference is still individual difference. And we are still the most homogeneous, one of the most homogeneous species on the planet. In fact, we're more homogeneous genetically than chimpanzees. So there is more genetic diversity between chimpanzees than there is between human beings. But there is some, you know, if you look at the margins of the genome, you can find statistical differences as you can in families. Now, the why do you draw that circle, of course, the weaker that becomes. When you get to the kind of continental or, or spanning continental, continental levels as you are with race you know you can imagine that genetic relationship is now so weak you can barely notice it anymore you really have to hunt in the genome to look for it and that's why that's what scientists mean when they say that race is a social construct it really is that arbitrary and it really doesn't have any useful meaning whatsoever uh, when it comes to defining human difference yes and i was struck by something um that i think was in your in your book um, about the absolute triviality of skin, skin color as a, you know, it's just really just a very superficial difference between people that means very little um, biologically, though it may mean a lot, it's come to mean more so, sort of socially. Yeah, and even skin color, like I said before, varies within populations yeah. enormously. The variance, so for example, if you were to test someone's DNA, you cannot definitively 100% know what their skin color is. There are so many genetic variants associated with skin color. And the skin, the variance, for example, for pale skin, you see even in sub-Saharan Africa. So um, this kind of idea that there are black genes or white genes or brown genes, just that just isn't true. No, it's a, it's a fallacy. So just, we're going to sort of start by exploring how then this, this, this sort of shaky concept actually kind of developed. Um, so just to, to turn um, to Marius, um, could you perhaps expand a bit more on, on, on the origins of this in terms of the emergence of race science during the Enlightenment period? Certainly. And firstly, I should like to say thank you to Davina Library for inviting me to this wonderful conversation. Um, so the alignment, as all of us know, it's venerated as one of the founding moments of modern democracies. It is the movement, intellectual and political, that push forward ideas of equality, progress, emancipation. Uh, so it's also one of the pinnacles of European civilization and culture. But it's also some, um, the majority of scholars would argue, it is also the moment where we have, um, where we could detect the emergence of what we call today the modern racial science and modern race thinking. It is the period, if you want, when the concept of race is turned into an instrument of domination and oppression and basically controlling and regulating the world. 
So if you think of the most famous philosophers and biologists of the Enlightenment, their names are basically etched onto the edifice of race and races they, they built. And they left us with, we are still living in the world that um, navigates in the universe of ideas created by the Enlightenment. So in many ways, if you really want to take seriously the values of the Enlightenment, the positive values of the Enlightenment, we ought to question its foundations and we ought to question its obsession it had with human differences and obsession it had with race. Everyone from Blumenbach to Immanuel Kant had to say something about race and how it organized and rationalized not only, as Angela pointed out, not only human differences, but ultimately ideas of race and white superiority. It is about Europeans being at the top of the ladder. It is about Europe being the ultimate form of civilization the world has ever seen. So you have this duality working simultaneously in the alignment that um, scholars have been at pains to recognize at first, but now is more broadly accepted. And it is a good starting point in our current debate about the origins of race and racism. And how would you say then that from, from those kind of roots, um, the coming of, of Darwinism and the theory of natural selection in the 19th century affected the development of race science? Charles Darwin is uh, a, a person of his time. And although he was, this is to say, of course, that uh, being, having lived in the 19th century, he did um, put forward many of the ideas that were popular in the 19th century. But at the same time, he's well known for his monogenism, that is to say, he believes in the unity of the human species. However, and he, uh, uh, he opposed slavery and, and, and he, he did uh, quite uh, actively support very noble causes. But at the same time, within his monogenism or within, within his theory of unity of the human species, he did construct of hierarchy of races. So he did believe that the white Europeans are better prepared and more successful in the struggle for existence than other races, uh, than the blacks or the Asians. He did believe within that hierarchy that men are better than women. So you have a gender and a racial hierarchy that he actually constructed within his theory of evolution. So that's one aspect. The other thing, of course, as, as he was very, in a way, sympathetic, he nodded rather than rejected his cousin Francis Galton's ideas of eugenics. So uh, he didn't embrace eugenics, but he did not criticize or rejected it uh, uh, forcefully either. So you have Darwin contributing um, through his work to a very big debate about how the world is organized and whether there is an explanation for uh, evolution and progress. And, uh, and his ideas of, uh, of the struggle for existence um, the survival of the fittest have been, of course, as we know very well, taken sometimes out of context and used um, under the guise of what is broadly called social Darwinism. But to separate uh, a good Darwin from a bad Darwin, I think, uh, goes against the writings. So uh, it's easy to separate, uh, and people have been trying to do something similar with other big figures. Um, in the panoply of European culture to separate the good part from the bad part, as it were. But ultimately, I think we need to look holistically at these intellectuals and creators of movements 
And it doesn't get better, bigger in the history of science than Charles Darwin. It's extremely high up on the pedestal, on that edifice I mentioned earlier that the Enlightenment constructed. And his name is definitely there. And uh, so it requires both a hermeneutical understanding of his work, but at the same time, um, we need to take into account how his ideas were used broadly by scientists in other fields, uh, and then by everyone, basically, from literary figures to painters, and uh, until it disseminated so broadly that by the 20th century, everyone was talking a social Darwinistic term. Both uh, common people uh, on the streets of European capitals and politicians in, in governments across the world. Perhaps you could just say a word to just clarify in case anyone's not sure what social Darwinism means or is. Very simply put, it means the application of Darwin's ideas of evolution to social, to the social world, to the social life, social practices. So it's just a transposition or a move from the, from the science to the social. That's something that Angela has written about. Uh, it's very interesting when science is being used for political and social reasons. And uh, science is never neutral. Science is always political and science is always social. So. Uh, with Darwin and his ideas, of course, um, are similar to um, his, um, um, the sociologists who lived more or less around the same time, which is uh, Herbert Spencer, who actually was very uh, keen and promoted the idea of social Darwinism. Um, these ideas were immediately applied to social realities, to the explanation of this, how societies function, how individuals interact, how hierarchies are being constructed, what position of dominance certain people should be in and others shouldn't. And the entire world has, in a way, uh, been very keen to perpetuate these very simplistic and crude forms of scientific explanation of the world. But as, as we're discussing here, ultimately what we are confronting with is not the science per se, but the application of science in various fields from uh, politics to uh, to, to, to society and social Darwinism, to go back to that particular example, is it's, it's illustrative, it's exemplary in this, in this, its broad implications, and uh, it has devastating, in many ways, political implications in the 20th century, as we know, through its adaptation um, and adoption by uh, various racist states, including Nazi Germany. Thank you. So, turning um, again to Angela, um, Angela, perhaps you could just say a few words about what the connection is between race science and the European colonial projects of the 18th and 19th centuries? Um, well, it's a profound connection, really, when you think about it, what justification is there for colonizing another state? Um, and ideas about racial difference and racial superiority and inferiority informed that relationship. Um, it definitely helped the colonial project because it gave a kind of intellectual framework for believing that uh, the West was, or Britain in particular, was kind of helping the nations, that it was bringing us, it was a kind of civilizing force. It was giving them something that they wouldn't have otherwise, that they innately weren't able to achieve by themselves. And you still hear this narrative now. There are still people who say, well, wasn't empire a good thing because it gave India the railways and it, and it gave them these legal systems? as if to imply that they would never have done it by themselves, that left to their own devices, they could never achieve these things, forgetting, of course, the horrible ways, devastating ways in which Britain drained, economically drained the countries it was colonizing, making it less 
possible for them to achieve independently what they might have otherwise. So um, it was these ideas were kind of rooted in that colonial project and they fed off each other. You know, here are European scientists um, constantly reifying this idea that they are superior biologically, that they have qualities that other races do not have. And then the politics, you know, informed by the politics and the politics in turn informed by this in continuing this colonial project, this empire project. And I very firmly believe that these kind of narratives play out even today when you in British nationalist movements, we saw them play out even in subtle ways, I think, during the Brexit campaign. Um, thank you. Yes. And then just to sort of stay with the subject of Britain, um, you know, at the peak of um, and this question is going to be addressed to Marius at the peak of British imperial power in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was a great deal of anxiety in Britain about the sort of racial sort of strength of the British people. And the, the Boer War, for example, was a focus for some of that anxiety in the quality of the recruits or quality should be in inverted commas as well um, and eugenics was one kind of response to this work this anxiety about racial strength so I just wondered Marius if you could kind of expand upon that and and, and perhaps clarify what eugenics is yeah that's that's a big topic in itself and I will do my best to, to simplify it and summarize some of the ideas uh, we ought to start with Francis Galton, I mentioned earlier, uh, considered to be the founder of modern ideas of eugenics, and he defined eugenics in many ways. He revised the definitions he proposed since the, night, since the 80s, 70s onwards. But the definition that everybody uses is the one he gave to University College that we, we've been discussing uh, these weeks uh, when he established the Research Fellowship in Eugenics in 1904, and then he defined national eugenics as the study of agencies under social control they may impair or improve the racial qualities of future generations. So this is the definition of eugenics he offered. So it was about the social control of these factors that can improve uh, certain elements in the society. Now, at the same time, we need to say that this is one strand of eugenics, arguably probably the most known, uh, but there was a very powerful uh, simultaneous movement emerging in Germany at the time. And for the German eugenicists, particularly for people like Alfred Plutz, who came up with his definition of racial hygiene. He considered Galton's definition to be too restrictive as it concerned only reproduction. So Alfred Plutz at the same time offered his definition of racial hygiene. And he says, it is about the welfare of the race, past, present and future. So uh, eugenics is just one aspect of racial hygiene. It is important, but it's not racial hygiene in its totality. Simultaneously, if you can believe it, the French were doing something similar. They were very concerned with natalism and population growth. And one famous physician, Adolphe Pinard, he came up with his definition of eugenics in the 1880s and 1890s. That was about the, the scientific study of the child. So when he comes to London in 1912, this week we're celebrating, well, we're commemorating the, uh, the first eugenic congress in London. He offered his definition of, uh, of, uh, of eugenics, which is basically education before procreation. And again, he said that Galton's eugenics is just part of his big movement, uh, which deals with the improvement, improvement of the human species. And then, of course, you have the American version of it, particularly someone like Charles Davenport, uh, who is one of the founding fathers of American eugenics. And he defined eugenics basically as the improvement of the human race through better breeding. So that was his 
keywords, better breeding. So you've got four, four very, you know, in a way interrelated um, definitions, uh, but that gives you a, a, an idea of how broad the spectrum works. So it really covered everything from the improvement of the race to protection of children and uh, welfare of, mother, of mothers. So across the world, these will be the main, if you want, ideal types of eugenic thinking with Galton in a way and Galton's eugenics uh, or eugenic model dominating mostly because it was so popular in the United States of America. Uh, and then he was immediately adopted and put forward uh, as the founding father of the modern eugenic movement. At the same time, of course, his disciple Carl Pearson doing the same thing at the University College uh, in London and more, uh, and more broadly in England. So this happens at the end of the 19th century. It really takes off by early 20th century, as you pointed out. There is a big domestic and international um, uh, sensitivity towards racial topics. It culminates with the creation of all these eugenic societies all over the world. The Germans were the first to create the eugenic society followed by the English and then the Nordic countries and then it goes on and on. And then the Eugenic Congress in London, uh, the first, and then the rest, um, it, it, it's, it's a long, the long story of the history of eugenics in the 20th century. Okay, thank you. And um, I'm just to say then that um, eugenicist ideas, you know, you've, you've given us an idea about their kind of diversity, but they're all, they were often associated with policies such as um, perhaps sterilizing women where there were concerns about their physical or mental health um, and um, pursuing, um, I mean, would you, this is, would you sort of associate them with, with even um, kind of euthanasia kind of policies as well? Well, yes, certainly. I mean, broadly speaking, you could separate the two, um, the two, uh, you could separate them into two groups. You could call them positive and negative eugenics. So you have a lot of positive eugenic uh, um, practices and methods. That's basically to ensure that the population, population growth numerically. And so this is about the, the, the quality of the population. It is healthy and it has uh, good living conditions, sanitary uh, and hygienic um, appropriate uh, living conditions and so on and so forth. And you also have negative eugenic practices uh, that span from sterilization to euthanasia. And uh, it really includes a very diverse group of people. It's sometimes dictated by race, sometimes dictated by medical conditions, something by disability. Toby mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, China and sterilization happening there. We have throughout 20th century to this day, um, we heard about Japan uh, recently. Um, and of course, uh, it all started with this very um, powerful belief that actually they could cleanse the gene pool of the population. They could get rid of the weeds. They could get rid of those people they deemed either inferior or unnecessary, or as it happened in the case of Nazi Germany, a combination of all, they were also unworthy of living. So if you can't prove yourself useful to society, then what's the point of you living? So you have a combination of factors. And uh, I think it's extremely important to highlight, as you rightly pointed out, Barbara, you need to consider um, both aspects. There is a lot of talk about uh, positive uh, eugenics, even if it's not called eugenics. Uh, and then, of course, the attention always uh, centers on negative eugenics, particularly sterilization. But the spectrum of negative eugenics itself 
uh, it's often uh, driven by race, racism, racial science, but also by, by very sort of difficult to translate in, in, uh, in common conversation, uh, medical concerns about disability, about uh, gender, about sexual orientation. So of course we know about civilization of homosexuals, disabled people, and so on and so forth. So it's a very, it's a prism through which we can understand a variety of issues. It percolates through so many themes in terms of not only history of science and medical thinking, but ultimately the way societies are being um, governed and um, who decides ultimately, to go back to what Angela was saying, who this, who's in power to decide over the life of others and based on what arguments, scientific or otherwise. Okay, thank you. And just just to turn um, to to Britain again, and just a question to Joe. Um, I wonder if you could comment on why in this country eugenics had such widespread appeal to politicians of of all stripes um, in the interwar period. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I mean, obviously, with all the caveats of eugenics in these various different types that have been mentioned, uh, various different beliefs, but in a broad sense, this kind of idea that, uh, you know, the aim to improve genetic stock of the population. I think, you know, in a post-Holocaust age, uh, we, we associate many of these ideas, of course, with the extreme far right, or we associate them with the Nazi party, and we see that the log supposedly logical conclusion of these ideas in, in something like Auschwitz, but in a pre-Holocaust age, it was obviously a fundamentally different climate, and if you look at the interwar Britain. Uh, this was by no means something on sitting on the far right. Um, this was a cross spectrum, uh, people believing in similar sorts of ideas and propagating similar sorts of policies around the idea of eugenics. And um, one of the things I think is really interesting is, and sometimes slightly forgotten outside of people that look at this closely, is, is a lot of the big figures of the British left of the, the interwar period were very, very positive about the idea of eugenics. Um, people like Sidney and Beatrice Webb, you know, the founders of the Fabian Society spoke very positively about it. Harold Lasky in the Labour Party, John Maynard Keynes, the great, you know, the great economist of the period was the, was the uh, director of the Eugenics Society from 1937 until 1944. H.G. Wells, the famous British author, I mean, you can kind of go on. The New Statesman, you know, the, the periodical of the left uh, came out in support of various eugenics policies and The Guardian a slightly dark patch in its history in 1934 back to this idea of voluntary sterilization. Um, and then there's some really shocking moments just to show how kind of broad it was, uh, things that sound especially shocking. Now we know the, uh, the Holocaust happened, you know, George Bernard Shaw talking about the need for kind of lethal chambers, uh, you know, for defectives or so-called defectives. Bertrand Russell, you know, this again, huge figure on of the intellectual movement talked about by progressives to this day of course he talked about uh, procreation tickets color-coded procreation tickets to prevent the gene pool of the elite being diluted by inferior human beings and this means that these ideas of eugenics and the idea of being able to kind of create a, a better human if you will were by no means stuck uh, you know in, in, intrinsically linked to far-right politics at the time and there's a whole reason you know host of reasons why these were so popular in the interwar period. You know, they were deemed modern. It was deemed as kind of uh, excitingly scientific, the ability that we can kind of create the perfect human or move towards it. It was deemed rational, um, uh, you know, and while some of these ideas of absolute rationality and science were being questioned after the First World War, especially, there was still that kind of residual notion of excitement about them. And of course, we have to understand that while 
uh, these were not tarnished with the Holocaust at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, these ideas had not been intrinsically linked to Nazi Germany and, and, and what we know happened with these ideas. They were, of course, we had seen, as, as Angela has mentioned, some of these ideas, how they played out in terms of imperialism and colonialism. But unfortunately, uh, th that, that didn't put them beyond the pale in the interwar period. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's why they were interesting in the interwar period or why they were so pervasive. What I would very briefly say is, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about it, is, is while they have now become intrinsically linked to the history of the Holocaust and the Nazi party, um, that didn't do for them. That wasn't the end of these ideas, uh, not just on the right, but also on the left. I mean, UNESCO in 1950 produced its famous statement on race, but that was much more of an ambition, I think, than a reality. If you look at the British populace in, in the 1940s, including after the Second World War, there is a gulf between the you know, egalitarian and progressive ambitions of the statement by UNESCO and the reality of, say, the experiences of non-white immigrants that arrived in the late 1940s and through the 1950s. There was a huge chasm. And so while the most extreme elements of eugenics were perhaps put beyond the pale by things like the Holocaust, a lot of the race science we've talked about and these notions of racial difference and hierarchies um, didn't disappear in 1945 and, of course, are still with us today. Yes. Yes, um, thank you. Yeah, I think it's it's just always so worth bearing in mind the, just how widespread and all pervasive these ideas often are. Just um, a question for Angela. Um, I wonder, Angela, um, now that we've kind of heard about race science, its history and eugenic, eugenicism and the context there, where do Jews fit into race scientists' ideas um, about um, these kinds of things? You know, what's interesting is that if you look at the early days of the British eugenics movement, it's a lot to do with class. And I think it's interesting that where every region and every country you look at has its own preoccupations around which group are we targeting, which are, which are the you know, who are the ones that we're most worried about. But in this focus on class, for example, there were efforts made to go and study, for example, people in East London, poor communities in East London, and they included immigrant communities in East London, including Jewish immigrant communities. So then through that kind of route, um, what had been a very class-based idea for a while became a racialized one as well. Um, and um, then in other countries, it was it was uh, treated differently. Yeah, and um, Maris, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that about within yeah. these contexts of race science and eugenicism. Where did Jews fit into that? If I could briefly, uh, well, there was a big debate at the end of the nineteenth century, of course, about whether the Jews are a race, and people are trying to discover the racial characteristic of the Jews. So you have a very powerful, both scientific and intellectual cultural movement, which of course, anti-Semitic. Yeah, we, we, we use the picture of one of Houston Chamberlain's books for this um, meeting. So he's one of those promoting a big debate about the Jews as a race. Um, but so that's one aspect, but the, the Jews themselves uh, are, are, are engaging very forcefully from the very beginning. So in particularly in Central Europe, you have people across from Austria to Romania. Uh, you have someone like uh, Ignaz Solshan in, in Austria. You have uh, Ferenc Han in Budapest. You have uh, Josef Klixman in Romania, who are actually arguing very forcefully and early on against the racialization of the Jews and against anti, they're basically anti-racist in the 1920s and 30s. Then you, of course, uh, we, 
ought to mention that the many eugenicists in Central Europe actually were Jews. There's a very powerful Jewish eugenic movement in Central Europe, which survives the Holocaust and is revived in Israel after 1950s. Many of these people who survived the Holocaust, uh, eugenicists from the 1920s and 30s, actually moved to Israel. So there is a powerful Zionist eugenics in Israel that actually draws its sustenance from Central Europe. So that's, that's another thing we have to mention. And like Angela said, and I will finish with that, Francis Galton himself was very keen through what he called composite photography to create the ideal type of the Jews. I mean, he was interested in creating ideal types of all people based on racial characteristics. So he's the first in a way to use photography and racial science in this way to create the prototypical Jew, the way a Jew should look like, and you, how can you identify a Jew? So uh, Jews are central, not only to the racial sciences broadly defined, but also to eugenics in this way. Um, so that's, that's, there are so many facets of this story uh, that uh, we can't go into. I just wanted to uh, point out a few, uh, a few, a few uh, ideas. Thank you. And kind of following on from that, I've got a question for um, Joe, which is, Joe, perhaps you could um, expand upon the impact that race science and eugenicist ideas had on Nazi thinking. Yeah, I guess I guess this is the big one, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, as um, Marius has mentioned, you know, Germany had had a longstanding kind of eugenics movement, uh, you know, longstanding interest in race science. And Post the First World War, these kind of ideas come into contact with this kind of traumatic aftermath of the First World War, subsequent economic upheavals, and then you have uh, intrinsic to this kind of the Nazi worldview, so Germanic racial superiority, militaristic ultranationalism, all coming together. And I mean, if you look back, I guess, uh, if anyone's had the misfortune of reading Mein Kampf, you know, chapter 11, Nation and Race, he talks about, uh, Hitler talks about um, the role, you know, race and race science there, and, and some names pop out. And of course, there's some big names in the kind of German race science scene or people that propagate race ideas. Um, the obvious one is someone like Hans F.K. Gunther, um, who taught the University of Jena, Berlin, I think, uh, then Freiburg. And, and he wrote extensively on numerous books and essays on racial theory, uh, which were really, really influential on the Nazi party. And of course, he joins the Nazi party in 1932. Um, one of the kind of race scientists that joins before they come to power. Um, and his work is talked about by Hitler and, and quoted by Hitler and, and some research has been done, found how many books Hitler owned of his on his bookshelves. And he was talking about Nordicism, this notion of racial separatism and kind of superiority of the Nordic races, which had a huge influence on what we then later see. And then, of course, you can't kind of talk about the Nazis and race without touching on I guess the infamous Alfred Rosenberg, head of the Foreign mm -hmm. Office of Foreign Affairs, key Nazi theorist. Um, he kind of is central to this creation of this Nazi idea of a racial ladder, human racial ladder, um, which then of course justifies a huge amount of these policies. And then this then obviously becomes law, uh, I guess. These kind of racist ideas become real or tangible in the sense that you have this specific racist doctrine of superiority of the Aryan race and racial hierarchies tied in with the eugenics program, this racial hygiene by compulsory first sterilization, of course, and then the extermination of the so-called Untermenschen, which comes later. And then we have the Nuremberg Laws uh, in September 35, starts coming in, the law for the protection of German blood and German honor. And then we have the Reich Citizenship Law, again, talking about the forbaying of marriages between uh, extramarital and extramarital intercourse, of course, between Jews and Germans. 
And this is updated actually in November 35 to include Romani people and black people with these strict hierarchies. One thing I do think is interesting is there is this weird interplay in Nazi Germany between this race science and this kind of pseudo-scientific belief in racial hierarchies and this slightly more flexible, mystical notion of race, um, blood and soil, etc. And we see things like the honorarians where Hitler turns around and says the Han Chinese and the Japanese are technically honorary Aryans. It's a slightly more mythical notion, uh, which allows them also with Northern India and, and broad sense of Pan-Aryanism. So there is this ruthless scientific approach the idea, and this kind of slightly more mythical one. And yeah. then of course, this becomes, uh, the, the reality of this becomes clear. They have huge amounts of trained geneticists, psychiatrists, anthropologists. They develop this racial health policies and they begin the mass sterilization of what they call the genetically diseased. Um, and ended up, of course, with a near annihilation of European Jewry. And, and the numbers we know are no, 400,000 forced sterilizations, 275,000 euthanasia deaths, and of course, the millions upon millions that end up through the final solution. Um, this is kind of the reality of eugenics and the reality of race science um, in the hands of a, a state, in a modern, militarized, mechanical, modern state, I guess. Okay, thank you. Um, so question for Marius, um, which sort of follows on from that, you know, because of the horrors of, of Nazism um, and also a growing scientific realization that race didn't really exist in a sort of biologically meaningful way, it might've seen post Second World War that race science and eugenicist ideas had disappeared. But was this really in fact the case? Well, it wasn't the case. Um, as Jill mentioned at some point, you have a very clear repudiation of Nazi racial ideologies after the, the Second World War. Uh, and once the horrors of the Holocaust became public, people tried to distance themselves from eugenics, the understood in the Nazi uh, sense. So that leads, uh, as Joe pointed out, to UNESCO's first statement on race in 1950 and then the second one in 1951. So that's one trajectory. The other one, of course, happens already in anthropology uh, via Franz Boas and American anthropology. There is a movement that actually transfers the attributes of race to the attributes of culture. So that's one important strand that in the 50s and 60s becomes very prominent. The other one happens in the sphere of biology that what we call in the 1930s, the neo-Darwinian synthesis by 1950s, that, that is to say combines Mendelism with Darwinism. And here we could see a transfer from the concept of race to the concept of population. So now people are interested in populations. And then finally, what we can see, it's a, it's a move from the concept of eugenics and the, the very word eugenics to the word population genetics and human biology. So you have these four concurrently happening moves uh, or directions that we can see in the, um, in the immediate post-war period. Now in practical terms, of course, racism continued unabated, not only in the United States of America, but also in, um, in Europe, in South Africa, in the global South, in South America, of course. Uh, so um, the scientific debate about race uh, and racism is uh, one aspect of the, the, the discussion, but ultimately it had um, to this day um, a, a very little impact on how people think and react in moments of, uh, of interaction with diversity and difference. Uh, 
So whilst not to diminish the important work done by people in the 1950s, like Ashley Montague, for example, or Julian Huxley, or Claude Lévi-Strauss, and a handful of people really try to push forward to say that race has no biological basis whatsoever. It is a social construct. The work, uh, it's still in the making. We're still working with that agenda. We're still working with that anti-racist agenda put forward in the 1950s and 60s. Okay, thank you. And turning to Angela um, and the subject of your most recent book, um, could you give us a bit more information about how race science, you know, Marius has told us how it didn't completely disappear, but nevertheless, it has kind of returned in certain respects um, in recent decades. So perhaps you could expand on that. Well, um, I think what Marius was explaining is kind of crucial to understanding why we still have this problem now, why people still think in these ways. The fact that even in the 1950s, there was a concerted effort to remind people that race is a social construct. And I'm still being asked in the 21st century <laughs> constantly by editors and journalists and when I give talks, is race a social construct? If it is, then how is it a social construct? That's where we always start. Mm. Well, you know, that 70 years later, we're still starting from there, just goes to show how much, how little progress we've made. And the reason for that, I think, partly has to lie with the fact that scientists were not all on board even then. So even the reason that there were two statements put out by UNESCO is because not everyone was on board with the first one. There were scientists who disagreed, who couldn't, there were prominent scientists at top universities like Oxford who weren't entirely convinced, even in the 1950s, that we were one human species. So just think as late as the 1950s, scientists weren't even sure that we were one human species, not all scientists. And that I think speaks to the problem that we have here. There were enough within enough people within academia who were providing resistance. There were also, we have to remember, Nazi scientists still rolling around within academia who had been eugenicists before the war, became geneticists after the war, you know, kind of rehabilitated themselves. This was this process that was happening to turn the race science and the eugenics evolved very slowly and very gradually into the genetics and the and the study of human difference in other ways in the future. Population genetics really is a product of that. It's a product of saying, okay, so we had race science, how can we study human difference now? It's almost a euphemism in that sense, because a lot of the frameworks and the language may have uh, may seem different, but they're not fundamentally as different as you might think. Um, and that is the issue we still have, that scientists still tend to group. Look what happened during this coronavirus pandemic. We saw racial disparities in health, which we have always seen. There are always racial disparities in health for lots of different reasons, not least because um, race overlaps so heavily with socioeconomic status in countries mm -hmm. like the US and the UK. Being an immigrant is so heavily associated with working a frontline job or being more exposed in ways that damage your health. And yet there were mainstream academics um, top physicians in both countries speculating as to the possibility that there was some genetic cause here. Mm. There's really no basis for saying that. They were just speculating. There's no evidence for it. And the fact that even today, scientists so easily and quickly resort to some innate belief, some belief in innate differences between racial groups, just goes to show that 70 years has made almost 
little difference. I wrote a piece for The Lancet um, not that long ago where I argued that medicine almost as a field keeps race science alive in some ways. Mm. We are so routinely racialized by doctors. You look at medical guidelines, for example, around hypertension. If you are under 55 and black, you'll be given, you're advised to be given a different treatment than if you're under 55 and white. How do we justify that? There is very little justification in the literature. It's this racialized way of thinking. So while, so there was always this retention of these ideas on the one hand in mainstream science, but even at the edges. So here I'm talking about people kind of um, at the very margins of academia and sometimes outside it, there was also um, a network of people who were trying to keep scientific racism in its 19th century form. So this kind of belief in white superiority, white supremacy, racial mixing is dangerous, segregation sh should be maintained, that immigration is dangerous. Those people also were communicating and maintaining their networks after the Second World War. They included Nazi race scientists, they included um, ordinary scientists at universities, for example, Reginald Ruggles Gates, who was a botanist, botany professor at King's College London. So individuals, eugenicists and race scientists who were still committed to that old way of thinking, kept scientific racism alive. And today's networks that we see in the alt-right and in the far right, who use, for example, bell curves, IQ maps of the world, um, call themselves race realists, they have their own language and their own structures. There is a direct connection between that post-war cabal of people and what we have today. In fact, one of them is still alive, Roger Pearson, the found, one of the founders of the Mankind Quarterly, a white supremacist who was very active in these networks after the Second World War, is still alive now. And he is still part of these networks now. Um, so while these ideas have waxed and waned politically. And at the moment, I think we're seeing a resurgence of it because of the rise in of the far right and ethnic nationalism all over the world of white supremacy um, and populism, of course. So it's popular right now, but it's always been bubbling there under the surface. Mm. And do you want to um, just say a few more words about how these kind of modern day um, scientific racists and eugenicists try and kind of insert themselves within mainstream discourses and also online? Well, this is, I think, something that people have been, um, everyday people, I mean, have been slow to recognise. I think during the 90s, many of us imagined that the main racists left out there in society were the thugs in the street you know, the skinheads, the people that you could see, what we were failing to recognize was that intellectual racism was still there in government, in academia, that there were people keeping these ideas alive um, at a different level of discourse. The internet comes along, social media comes along, gives them a way to communicate in ways and connect with each other in ways that they never had before. So while they were always there, through their newsletters and these kind of pseudo-scientific journals, always collaborating and always working with each other. The internet kind of, um, it gave them power that they never had before to reach out into, for example, um, mainstream discourse in ways that they couldn't before. So one of their techniques, and I think organizations like Hope Not Hate and also the Center for Countering Digital Hate have shown this, that one of their MOs is 
to engage prominent journalists, mainstream scientists in conversation on Twitter into a debate, creating the illusion that there's some kind of debate around whether race is a social construct and whether there are profound differences between races. And in so doing, these people with very few followers then get the attention of hundreds of thousands. Um, so we play a part in that. We have to be very careful. One of the reasons I left mm. social media was because I, I was no longer willing to be a part of that game. Mm. One of the things that they do is use, for example, arguments around academic freedom, freedom of speech. They accuse those who won't engage with them of um, not having a commitment to academic freedom or, or freedom of speech. Um, so they're very clever in their rhetoric. And that is, I think, how they've managed to assert themselves within spaces that they wouldn't have been entertained before because they appeal to that part of us that does want a free debate and does want freedom of speech, but they're not doing it in good faith, of course. Yeah. They're doing it in order to reassert themselves. Okay, thank you. And now, um, sort of to turn to a related question um, for Joe. Um, so, so what impact have these ways of thinking had recently on the alt-right and on neo-fascist movements um, and how sort of seriously should we take the threats from these these areas yeah i mean just to follow on from what angela said i mean i, I couldn't agree more actually and um, i think there's a lot of parallels with the way that these work in the same way that the hol traditional holocaust deniers have worked saying the sort of tactics you know saying uh, free speech and academic rigor we need to have a debate and if you don't debate me um, and the problem, of course, is the moment we have these debates, we legitimise them as questions and they're not questions. But it's extremely worrying. Well, I mean, Angela's work on this has been brilliant. For those of us that look at kind of contemporary fascist and far right movements, but are not experts on things like race science and the history of race science so much, her book has been wonderful entry into this because in the last few years, monitoring these things and watching the, the shift towards talking increasingly about race science within the far right, um, you know, I, there's a chapter in, in, in the book that I've just put out about the alt-right and it's, there's a chapter called For Whom the Bell Curves. And it's, it's a, a large bit, it's a kind of pun on uh, Charles Murray's 94 book, The Bell Curve, and how, how widely talked about it is by the contemporary far right, you know, this idea that intelligence is genetically linked to characteristics of race. And in March 2017, when, when we were looking through some of the, the data and stuff, the bell curve was number one on Amazon uh, in the demographics category it was number three in social sciences and five in u.s history textbooks for a period um people were buying this by the bucket load and within the far right within the alt-right especially this was a huge deal and essentially the movements that we monitor at hope not hate we see race and race science talked about in three kind of slightly separate but also hugely overlapping ways one is a term that was mentioned just a moment ago race realism second one is so-called human biodiversity and the third one is this slightly more coded language around what they call ethno-culture and ethno-pluralism. And in, in a very brief kind of cap of each, I guess race realism is synonymous, it's, synonymous with, it's a pseudo-scientific racism uh, in a traditional form, if you will. And you have really big figures like Jared Taylor in America, an organization called American Renaissance. He's been around since the 90s and then became a huge figure in the alt-right. And one of the things I've been kind of monitoring over the last few years is the alt-right and these contemporary online international far-right networks not necessarily creating anything new or very rarely but they are disseminating these old uh, long-standing racist ideas in a new and innovative especially online way and jared taylor would be an example of that rebranding himself as alt-right rather than just talking about race 
And then an example of this that we see increasing all the time is this notion of human biodiversity, which is this supposedly rational discourse on genetically proven physical and mental variations between humans. Um, and one of the big things they say, which is, is what Angela kind of mentioned, is this is not an ex political project. They would all argue this is not a political project. It is an apolitical scientific pursuit would be the way they would phrase it. And you get some big names like Steve Saylor, um, who coined the phrase in the 90s. But someone like Stefan Molyneux, who most normal people have understandably have not heard of, was just kicked off YouTube a few weeks ago, about eight years too late, talks about race science, talks about IQ difference and the like. And he had, uh, you know, claimed 250 million downloads from his, so he called himself the largest philosophy platform on the internet and had tens of millions and hundreds of millions of views propagating this content. No longer are the days when, if you wanted to engage with race science in the 1980s, you'd write to something like, you know, you'd write to a book list, you'd find this kind of stuff online. The ability to access this content because of social media online has become so much easier. We see just the ability to get it is easy and it's everywhere. And also the social cost of engaging with it has declined. Um, the days when you would need to sign up to a far right party to engage in this sort of politics and risk people finding out, now you can sit in your bedroom anywhere in the world and engage with this content for free at the no risk to your own self. And then this kind of thing, which partly touches on something Mario said about this kind of talk about culture. This is something the modern far right have been very good at when it comes to discussing race and race science. One of the big threats at the moment is identitarianism, this European network, it's got its roots in late 60s French far right philosophy, but it's best known now as Generation Identity, the street activist group. But they talk about ethno-cultural identity rather than just race. And they essentially, they tie, they biologizes and essentializes culture to such an extent that it's functionally equivalent to race. And then they talk about ethno-pluralism rather than say like apartheid in a way that we, they might have traditionally, they talk about ethno-cultural groups are ostensibly equal but ought to live separately uh, and to respect the right to difference and their right to self-determination and ability to ensure that they don't lose their eternal homogeneity. Um, so the changing language around these traditional ideas as well as the changing ways in which it's disseminated. Um, but at its essence, these three areas, whether or not it's ethno-pluralism, whether or not it's HBD, whether or not it's pseudo-scientific racists and race realists, they all have a common belief that race is real still. Um, yeah. Different races have different inherited characteristics and that it is essentially the defining characteristic of their identity. Uh, and this is something we're seeing increasingly. And just to finish on the Black Lives Matter moment that kind of inspired this event a little bit, one of the things that's been watching uh, interesting or, or worrying to watch is a lot of the movements that we monitor that have talked in terms of culture for the last decade, especially around Islam and Muslims, and it's not about race. Mm. Um, as in this Black Lives Matter moment, the mask has slipped once more, and we've seen the individuals once again talk in terms of race, talk about racial difference, talk about black crime being an eight. Even figures like Tommy Robinson, who has spent his entire political career saying he doesn't care about race, it's only about Islam, that mask slipped in that moment. So I think it's an interesting and worrying moment to see the kind of uh, rise and return of this race science and the way that it's being propagated and distributed. Yeah, thank you very much. And I think um, to quite a considerable extent, you've answered my final question, which was really to everyone, um, which was to do with why these ideas um, persist given the lack of, of evidence for them. But I think Joe, to quite an extent, you've answered that, but I don't know if, um, Marius or Angela, you want to add anything um, to that? No, whether we have time, I will simply add to this wonderful uh, comment by Joe. 
one thing. Um, we are talking greatly about Britain, but I think the mask has slipped off so many people in Europe as well, where you see this anti-Roma racism and anti-Semitism. And that's extremely worrying to me uh, to see that finally now they feel emboldened by what's happening in Britain and America to in other parts of the world, but particularly Britain and America, to actually become very actively racist, anti-Semitic, anti-Roma, to go back to what Europeans do best, namely hate others. And Angela, fi a final comment from you. Well, I would just, um, it's been such an excellent discussion. I've so enjoyed being part of this. Thank you for that. Um, but um, yeah, for me, I think one of the things to remember um, about why these ideas are so persistent and why sometimes you see them even bleeding into the way politicians, mainstream politicians talk about differences and, you know, why some groups are more successful than others is that if you could fundamentally look at the world around you and say that the inequalities that you see in society, which are various, are down to nature, then you don't have to do anything about it. You know, you can just leave yeah. things the way they are. And I think that is what drives this for so many people, that they would like to be able to say that we don't need equal opportunities. We don't need quotas. We don't need to make things fairer for anyone or take or try to combat racism or sexism or any other kind of prejudice, because this is just how things pan out. And I think this is what gives these ideas still to this day so much political appeal. OK, thank you. If, if you are all, we've overrun a bit, but if you're all happy, I will take two questions, I think. Is that okay, everyone? Yeah, okay, so just a couple of questions. So the first one is from Keith and it says, um, thinking about the enlightenment, to what extent did it promote equality of human beings and to what extent did it promote hierarchies of human beings? Is there a paradox here? So I don't know, um, Maris, do you want to take that one? Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's a very good point. And this is what we call uh, the paradoxes of the Enlightenment, that you have on the one hand, you know, promoting all these wonderful ideas uh, at the same time with creating differences and hierarchies and placing the, the white uh, Europeans at the top. So it is intrinsic to Enlightenment, enlightenment thinking. Uh, so you have many examples of people doing both. You have someone like David Hume, uh, very well known, of course, uh, arguing at the same time for equality and progress and emancipation and then saying, of course, that the black, well, he would use other words, of course, the black race or the black people are inferior. Or you have the founding fathers of American Republic thinking, of course, that we all equals, but some of us are more equal than others. And uh, so this is one of the paradoxes, not only of the alignment, but this is one of the paradoxes of the modern world. And this is what we're try, trying to untangle through this critique we're constantly doing in our conversation about race and racism. Okay, thank you. And then um, a final question from Sandra asking if, if one of you could comment on the role of Eugene Fischer in Nazi Germany. Um, she says he didn't um, see himself as a Nazi yet seems to have, have been one clearly. So I don't know who would feel they could answer that or well, perhaps we'll just have to leave that one hanging. <laughs> uh, no, I, I can answer that if, or Joe can do it. Joe, you want to okay. do it? Yeah, no, no, I was, I was just going to very briefly say, my, my understanding was that Eugene Fisher, as well as director of the um, Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, was 
was a member of the Nazi party. Yeah. Was my understanding. And um, his work certainly influenced the Nuremberg laws. So, um, uh, so, but of course, I mean, there's lots of examples. I don't, so I don't know the ins and outs of what the question is getting at there, but there are loads of examples of individuals whose work contributed to kind of things like Nazi ideology, but didn't necessarily align themselves to it publicly, etc. But my understanding with Eugene Fish was that they were a member. I don't know if Marius, if you've got anything to add. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add, uh, that's a very good point uh, to make, I suppose, because many of these very important figures, people like Ernst Rudin or Alfred Plotz or Eugen Fischer, all of these people started, you know, to become quite famous already by 1910s. I mean, Fischer published an absolutely crucial book in the history of racial anthropology, uh, the research he did in West Africa. And he was the person actually to demonstrate not only the superiority of the racial, uh, but also the degeneration that occurs if you mix races. So his thinking in the 1910s influenced the racial hygiene movement in Germany, but then of course the series of laws introduced um, in the post uh, Versailles Germany against of course the occupation of Germany by black troops and so on and so forth. So by the 1930s, when these people are already extremely well established, um, it's very little uh, dissonance between what they've been arguing for 20 years and what the Nazi party is trying to argue. So mm. some cases, not him, but others may not have become a full-fledged members of the Nazi party, but they think it were totally aligned with the entire project of social and biological engineer, engineering orchestrated by the Nazi regime after 1933. Okay, thank you. So um, I was going to hand back to Toby in just a moment, but just, just to say thank you so much to all our speakers and um, I would urge you all to um, look at the links in the, in the chat and um, buy their books. Um, so, Toby. Yeah, I just wanted to add to what you said. Thank you so much on behalf of the library for joining uh, us, uh, all three of you. It's been fascinating to listen to this discussion. I think it's been an excellent way to start this series. And I just wanted to to uh, flag up that the next uh, planned event is on the 3rd of September, which will feature Professor Dirk Moses and Dr. Becky Jinks, and that's going to explore the theme of genocide. Um, we are also planning two further events uh, before the end of the year, um, one of which will examine the history of racial anti-Semitism, and one of which will look at British uh, historical memory and colonialism. So I really hope that everyone in the audience who's joined us today will also join us for those. So I'll just conclude by saying thank you to Angela, Marius, Joe, and also to Barbara. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you.